Can changing your corner of the universe change the world? We think so. You've heard the quote, be the change you want to see in the world. But what does that look like? This is where we meet the people that are walking that out. One person, one idea, one decision at a time. Here's Baden and Rex. All right, welcome back to another episode of My Corner of the Universe. Today, we had Bill Peterson from Friends of San Lucas joining us, and it was a really amazing conversation of a, let's say, a well-rounded nonprofit organization that's helping in Guatemala. It was a really neat conversation. Bill had just, he was just a wealth of knowledge just sharing really about all the different things that they do down there. And uh, we could have spent probably another hour talking to him. It was this really amazing conversation. Yeah. I mean, it's so incredible what the mission and the organization is doing in this small town. I mean, everything from schooling to, you know, land acquisition and providing homes and stoves, healthcare. I mean, they are, yeah, coffee. I mean, that, that was a cool, really, really cool. um, I don't know if you'd say like organization or I don't, know, I don't hate this called a revenue stream because it's a nonprofit, but they they have this this marketplace set up to where they are buying coffee from all the a lot of the local or small above growers market price. above market price yeah. and then roasting it locally and then selling it um, in the U, in the U.S. on their website. And the whole point of that is to create a consistent marketplace for the local growers of the area. I love it because it's one of those things where it's like, you know, the give a man a fish, he eats for a day, teach him he, you know, how to fish, he eats the rest of his life. This isn't an organization that's just going to like, hey, here's some money, like do this. I'm like, hey, how about we will create a marketplace for you to sell your coffee that you worked hard to to grow these beans and produce it. And it gives um, us in America or anywhere, whoever's listening to you know, switch a little money from your local coffee place where you buy coffee to go ahead and buy a pound of coffee from Guatemala, try some really cool, delicious coffee and support a great cause. Yeah. And you could, I mean, what's really neat is you are supporting individual families when you do that. Like when everyone thinks of coffee production, they think of these giant, you know, in this case, they're down there, there's a lot of plantations. Well, they, this, organization has been buying the plantations and giving that land back to individual families. And so you could have a family on a quarter acre plot producing coffee that they sell back and at above market price. And so when you're purchasing, you could be potentially getting coffee from a local family down there in Guatemala. It's a really neat program. And like you said, Vaden, this is a way that, I mean, everyone that's listening is probably already buying coffee, whether it's Mm -hmm. like you said, Pete's or Costco or wherever they're getting their coffee like they're selling it at a really reasonable price and you're supporting the organization and local families. It's just like a win, win, win. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would suggest, you know, maybe if you're, if you're listening to this on your computer, even on your phone, take a second and just Google, you know, Google Lake Atalan. It's spelled A T I T L A N in Guatemala. And then also look up San, uh, San Lucas Tolima and the little town there. And they just kind of, while you're listening to this episode, gives you a good idea of the geographical feel of the area, the beauty of the area. Um, and I think it goes a long way because, you know, we talk with Bill about the importance of focusing down geographically with an organization and just, you know, finding a, a, a place to impact instead of going too big and too broad. And that's what they did with the mission uh, in San Lucas. And um, just, it looks like a beautiful area. You know, me and Rex were kind of talking right after the interview ended with Bill. It's like, man, it would be awesome to go down there and spend some time, you know, helping out in the mission that they have. 
Yeah. I mean, and uh, you could just tell Bill's passion for mm-hmm. getting people down there because once you get down there, it can have such impact on your life of what's really important, you know, and we get so caught up in the day to day, whether it's your job, your family, uh, you know, doing things on online, social media, and sometimes just to slow down and see what people in other parts of the world are doing, especially that are still rooted in their family and their communities. It can be just a breath of fresh air. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, hope you guys like the episode. I know that you will make sure that you are subscribing, um, and liking these episodes and sharing them with people, you know, you sharing these episodes help spread the word of organizations like friends of San Lucas and all the other great organizations that we interview. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of my corner of the universe. Today, we have a really exciting guest to share with you all. His name is Bill. Peterson. Bill is going to be talking to us about the Friends of St. Lucas uh, organization. Uh, You guys are going to learn a bunch on this episode of a region and an area that you might not be familiar with. And um, I'm just really excited for you guys to learn more about this. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. It's it's a delight to be here. So Friends of St. Lucas, uh, tell us a little bit about the organization and how you guys got started and Um, filling people in that aren't familiar with what you guys do. Sure, I will do that. Uh, So it is Friends of San Lucas. So one of the things that, one of the challenges of working uh, biculturally is that um, when to uh, use uh, native languages, when to use language of origin and et cetera. So we are Friends of San Lucas, not Friends of St. Lucas. Oh, sorry about that. That's fine. San Lucas Toleman is the name of the town where we work. So Friends of San Lucas is a U.S.-based nonprofit whose primary goal is to support the work of what we call the mission in San Lucas Toleman in Guatemala in the Western Highlands. So our job is primarily to raise money um, to support the work that's going on there, but we also provide logistical support, moral support, and then also run a visitor program, which brings about 1,200 people in a non-COVID year uh, to San Lucas to uh, to see what the programs are all about. Um, and the mission in, in San Lucas Toleman has existed since 1963. was wow. founded by a Catholic priest who came from uh, New Ulm, Minnesota, Father Greg Schaefer, um, who was going to be there for a couple of years and then fell in love with the place and started programming and was there for 50 years until his death in 2012. Oh, awesome. And so what what is it like there? I know just to kind of paint a picture for the listeners, geographically, it's right on Lake Atalan, uh, which from what I've heard, I remember traveling around through Central America when I was younger and hearing about that lake and how amazing it is. Just kind of paint a picture of the geographic feel sure. for the area. Yeah, so Lake Atitlan is stunningly beautiful. Um, San Lucas Toleman is on the southern edge of that lake. Um, it's in the area that are uh, called the Western Highlands of Guatemala, so a very mountainous area. The lake itself is a collapsed caldera of a volcano that erupted about 80,000 years ago. It's surrounded by three volcanoes. Um, average depth of the lake is about 900 feet. Um, there's a, a island that's that's submerged there with ruins of a of a Maya city uh, from centuries ago, um, and and it just has these incredibly beautiful vertical um, 
uh, mountainsides that go up from that area. It's about 5,000 feet in elevation, um, and it's primarily a coffee-growing region. And then as you go south out of San Lucas, you drop down in elevation to the Pacific Plateau, where primarily uh, rubber uh, bananas um, are grown. And uh, it's really, it's geographically incredibly gorgeous. Um, and just culturally very, very interesting uh, as well. But yeah, I like many people, I think Guatemala, I think coffee. So that makes sense that uh, it's the coffee mm-hmm. region there. Well, how many people live in San Lucas? So San Lucas Toloman um, is about 20,000 people. And um, the mission serves the town, but also all the communities that, that are in the municipality. So that's about 16 other communities uh, with about another 20,000 people in them. So about 40,000 people total in that area. Um, the uh, communities, that's a whole history of itself in terms of um, communities, what are now communities, which what uh, which were coffee plantations, or we call them fincas. Um, and that's another whole piece of, of, uh, of the puzzle in terms of the work that the mission does. Um, but the, the mission is really focused geographically in that area, in the municipality of, um, of San Lucas with all of its programs. And is it pretty, um, people, is it pretty predominantly Mayan descent? Like, would you say 90%, close to 100%? Like, how, yeah. what's the demographic like? Yeah, so Guatemala as a whole is about 60% indigenous. It's the largest indigenous population in the Western Hemisphere. Oh, wow. um, the, the area that we serve, so there are about 24 extent uh, Maya languages that are spoken now. Um, the area we serve is the Cachiquel um, Maya, and um, each language group has some particular customs, obviously a distinct language, um, uh, some distinct um, traje or clothing. Uh, a little farther over on the lake um, is the Sutsuil, uh, and then across the lake would be Quiche. So um, a lot of these groups um, have historically been relatively isolated, but in modern times have mixed a little bit more. Um, but the majority of the people that the mission serves are Kachikalmaya. How many communities are around uh, the lake? So there are, oh boy, a dozen or so towns that are around the lake itself. Okay. San Lucas Tolomon is kind of off the beaten path in terms of tourism. If you were to go into Lake Adatlan, you would typically start at a town called Panahachel, take some boot, boat tours, and they don't tend to go to San Lucas Tolomon. Um, it was never on the the tourist path Um Part of it is that it was kind of a workaday town. Um, it had, because of its proximity to the um, plantations in the Pacific area, um, there was a lot of people who worked down there. And then the whole uh, relationship with the coffee fincas um, made it a slightly different kind of experience for people. Um, the, the fincas were these large, large tracts of land that go back to the Spanish and uh, they essentially had kind of an indentured servitude uh, um, process that that uh, really kept the people on the plantations uh, pretty impoverished. And one of the things that Father Greg and the mission did in the early years is when land became available, when fincas became available for sale, 
they would buy them and then turn the fincas into communities. So that's been one of the huge revolutions, oh, wow. kind of really quiet, cool. quiet revolution in that area, um, where these folks that had lived on uh, these fincas were eventually given land um, to be able to build a house, a little bit of land to grow some food on, and and gain their fee- freedom from the the servitude of the fincas. That's really cool, and and. Uh, how many years has that part of the process been in the works? Would you say that's really been uh, over forty years of work? Okay. Um, okay. The last major land purchase was in the uh, about two thousand six or so. The Finca Providencia um, was purchased and then turned into four communities: um, Totoya, Tierra Santa, Porvenir, and Nueva Providencia. And those were the most recent um, communities developed. They're, they're actually called the model communities um, because, uh, because they were developed with the most intentionality, especially Totoya, Tierra Santa, and Porvenir. Are there still active fincas or... Yeah, there are. Um, the, the system has changed. Um, Guatemala, most people are surprised, actually has really um, pretty progressive worker-friendly um, uh, labor law. It dates from the 50s and the revolution of, of uh, President Arbenz. Most, the vast majority of organizations um, don't follow that labor law. Um, the mission does to a T. Um, and that that allows, that, that sort of gave a, um, a guarantee of minimum wages, um, twice yearly bonuses, payment into essentially a social security program. The Fincas uh, uh, did not do that. And um, by and large, what they do now, um, in the ones that still exist, exist, skirt the law by hiring people for a certain period of time. And then once uh, benefits would have to kick in, they essentially release all those people, hire another group of day laborers for a certain period of time until those benefits would kick in and then keep rotating people out. So the system has changed in that people aren't living on the fincas quite as much. Um, but it's uh, not any better for the workers. Yeah. Um, how does things like infrastructure work when you, you know, like when you do those kind of land purchases and you buy a finca and you want to kind of develop it, is there any assistance from the government at all on things like that? Or is it all kind of on you guys for roads or power or those things? There is um, some assistance, especially from the local municipality. Um, there's a good relationship between the mission and uh, the municipality of San Lucas Tolomon. Um, the, you know, of course, funding is always a challenge. And sometimes when you're responding to what feels like an immediate need, there's not always the long-term view of what are the implications of this. Mm-hmm. So an example of that would be um, the mission has just contracted with an organization called Engineers Without Borders, which is a wonderful organization like Doctors Without Borders, mm-hmm. but they're engineers. Um, and what they have been tasked with is going into all these communities and um, assessing water. Um, where So most of the water in the communities, the, the, um, the town of San Lucas Tulumon takes its water from Lake Adatlan. But most of the other communities are served by naturally occurring springs. Um, the spring water is actually pretty clean. 
Um, but there's no overall view of how much water is there, what's its flow rate, what the elevations, who owns the land that the spring is on. So Engineers Without Borders is doing that study so that what we'll have um, is really a good picture of how much water is available. Because of course, as you might imagine, as your community grows and your community depends on a spring, and you don't really know how much water that spring will, you know, how much water it, it provides and how many people that's going to support. So you get protective of it and you say, well, that's, you know, that's our spring. It's on our land or that's a spring that we've historically always used. And so with no sort of global picture, um, uh, it, it, it creates some water rights issues. And so we're hoping that with that study, we'll have the sense of, all right, there's plenty of water for everybody. We just have to figure out how to get it to where it needs to go and, uh, and, and be able to share it. And, you know, as most people who work in the developing world know, um, access to clean water is just a huge, huge piece of getting a leg up uh, in a community and, and it affects almost everything about a family. So it's really important that we do this kind of work as well as the immediate uh, reaction to, to pressing needs. I could see uh, how that is important work. Water is uh, only going to get more important as time goes on. Yeah. And also yeah. Too, I would think, you know, if you have to watch out for, water rights being corporatized you know uh, yeah. where where some other company comes in you know they basically either take or get the land that has spring water on it and now all of a sudden it's a vastly important resource that is now not even accessible for the local people exactly and and also there there's some tension between uh water rights for the fincas which you know coffee processing uses a lot of water mm -hmm. uh, versus what rights for the communities so there is some of that tension there now you mentioned that uh, coffee production is is pretty much the primary, um, you know, source of income. Is there also a fishing industry there, or is there any other type of industry besides coffee? Yeah, um, so there are a number of other interest uh, industries, um, some ways to make money there. Um, the coffee is the primary cash crop of most families. So if you have a piece of land. Um, you know, maybe the size of a, a typical city lot or double that um, that you would find in, in a place like Minneapolis, um, you're doing pretty well. The land is, is really pretty productive. It's rich uh, volcanic soil and uh, they can grow enough food um, for the family and then also enough food, to, enough coffee to, to sell a little bit. Wow. Um, and I can talk about the coffee program as well. The fishing <laughs> is an interesting story. Um, at one point in the in the '60s, there was this uh, 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 plan to uh, introduce black bass into the into Lake Atitlan, so it would become a, fort, a sport fishing mecca. Um, that they literally dropped these fish from from planes uh, <laughs> to uh, to stock the lake. Uh, the problem was um, it's a really aggressive fish, and it essentially wiped out. Um, all the native species of fish, oh, wow. including a, a species of grebe endemic to the area. So just, you know, the law of unintended consequences in full force there. So uh, there is a little bit of fishing that goes on in the lake, um, but it's not on any um, commercial level um, at all. I can imagine some of the old timers or locals were like that, whatever this type of fish that I love to catch and eat is now 
gone because these invasive yeah. bass came and ate him all, ate everything. Yeah. You know, the, the other thing with the lake is the lake kind of mysteriously rises and falls on about a 40 year cycle. And, um, they're not really sure why it does that. And, uh, and so people started when the lake was low, people started building very close to the lake and the mm. old timers would say, yeah, you really don't want to do that. <laughs> No, no, no. The lake's way down there. It's going to be fine. And now you'll see places where, you know, the, the kitchen, what was going to be somebody's kitchen counter. Now it looks like a swim up bar because uh, <laughs> the lake has risen up so high. They had to abandon the house. That's right. Uh, you know, since we're on the topic of coffee, tell us about the coffee Wanana. So we let listeners know yeah. a little bit more about that program. So the, the coffee program is, was uh, named Wanana because it was named after Father Greg's parents who, when they passed, uh, gave him a little bit of an inheritance, which he used to buy some land to start the, um, uh, the coffee program. And the coffee program is based on a direct trade model. And so the idea is that the mission will never pay only market price for coffee. I mean, coffee is a hugely volatile commodity. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes the street price is so low that you're actually losing money by selling coffee. You're not, you're not even making back what you've put into it. So the mission uh, never pays below a certain level and then always stays a certain percentage above whatever the street price is. So that uh, anybody who sells to the mission then is guaranteed that they're going to get a better price for their coffee and they'll bring better quality coffee to the mission as a result of that. Um, the mission tries to focus on small growers. So people might, you know, be bringing 100 pounds, 200 pounds of their coffee to sell to the mission, but that will give them enough uh, cash that they can buy some of the essentials that they need. Um, and so that, you know, the, the mission does not make a profit on the coffee. Um, uh, frankly, if we break even, we're, we're ecstatic. Um, I'm not sure that we do, but that's not the point. The point is to uh, provide a market for as many growers as possible. We don't call them farmers. We call them growers because in the U.S. you say you think farmer is some big operation. These are folks who are growing coffee on, on you know, a fifth of an acre or uh, two-fifths of an acre of land. It, they're not huge growers. It's their family operations. Um, but with the direct trade model, they're able to, to sell it for a little better price. And, um, and then the mission really gets good quality coffee that it then processes uh, in San Lucas and exports to the U.S. and is available for sale here through the Friends of San Lucas website. That was really cool. I had yeah. no idea that coffee could be produced on such a small piece of land like that. Yeah. Um, and, and it's all shade grown coffee. Um, I was actually blown away uh, the first time I was walking through the mountains and realizing I was walking through coffee fields because it just felt like I was walking through a forest um, uh, because the, the, the overstory there is so can be so thick and the coffee will still produce. And, and, you know, the huge advantage of shade grown coffee is you're not disrupting the ecosystem as much as you are with sun grown coffee. So you can maintain all the native vegetation. You can have bananas, uh, um, uh, avocados and other things growing there as well. And, uh, and then it, it creates the habitat that you need for bird migration. Um, and, uh, 
and also stabilizes the mountainsides because a lot of this is grown on, on pretty steep mountainsides and you do not want to over-cultivate those areas because then it leads to landslides. Wow. Gotcha. I'd always been curious about the term shade-grown coffee and yeah. why it was uh, was important. So it's really, really cool to know. I love the I love the, the concept and the idea of all this. I mean, it's just so great to be able to you know, provide a marketplace, a consistent marketplace for those growers. Um, and then, like you said, you know, it's not about for the mission for turn around and, and using it as a profit margin to make money. I mean, if you do great, but like you said, a lot of times it doesn't, but it's really just making that consistent market. Cause I would imagine if you were a grower in, you know, a small village in, you know, the middle of a very mountainous country, you might be like, gosh, what if, what if no one buys my coffee beans, you know, this month? Right. So giving them that that peace of mind to know that there is a marketplace there is, is so incredibly valuable. Have you guys thought about, or do you sell locally um, in any stores or is it all online for the actual retail side of it? The majority of it right now is online. Um, you know, so we, in terms of a, you know, as a coffee producer, coffee importer, I mean, it's pretty small potatoes, you know, 20,000 pounds a year, 25,000. Um, we want to make some slow growth with that. So it's primarily online. Um, we have a, a little bit of a retail presence and we also are developing much more of a um, fundraising presence. So if an organization, you know, a baseball team, a, a church group, um, you know, wants to make some money, um, we have some good platforms set up to help them do that so they can sell the coffee. Um, you're still getting a good deal because our, our retail price is $10 for a pound bag. Um, you can sell it for 15, make some good money, you know, and support some wonderful people. So um, that's really kind of one of the, the niches that we're after, um, you know, as much as we might love, you know, in theory to go into a national uh, um chain of uh grocery stores it's just the the capacity isn't there we're a pretty small pretty small organization from that standpoint and you guys do the roasting or is that another part of the whole production down there yeah so so we some of the coffee is roasted in san lucas so it's roasted and packaged sold in either ground or whole bean form um and then we also uh import what we call oro what most people might call green um, uh, Oro is, is the Spanish for gold, um, and then sell that to people who roast here. Um, and uh, they're developing some new uh, markets. There's a new um, honey coffee, which is processed in a slightly different way. So it retains a little bit more of the natural sweetness, the coating that's on the bean. Um, there's going to be some experimenting with, um, with what's called natural coffee, um, which it retains more of the husk. Um, and then we also just developed a, a single serve uh, form of this because we were waiting to be able to do single serve in a compostable cup and, uh, and now have that available for people who use single serve machines like Keurig machines. Wow. Oh, very cool. Is it uh, on the kind of stronger end of coffee or what is it as far as like the there's, strength? There's a medium roast. There's a dark roast. It's so interesting the 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 folks who run the coffee program in San Lucas, they, they can't believe that we would put cream in coffee and, and they kind of raise their, <laughs> you know, kind of do an eye roll. Yeah. When, when, you know, we want the dark roast because it's like they're saying you're losing the flavor, you know, I mean, they are all about 
this that really getting the flavor and the coffee tests really well um you know in the the excellent range uh scores of 85 uh 90 on a scale of 100 um and they're like boy you, you know you put you put milk in that you're just kind of losing the flavor you roast it too much you're losing the flavor it's like what are you people doing and they are absolutely they, they've actually won awards for the brewing process right just making the cup of coffee they've won awards for oh, that wow. whole process you know in terms of just getting the exact amount of coffee the exact amount of water the exact right temperature, temperature. Of water, yeah uh, you know the whole thing and and to watch um to watch them go through this process it's like watching watching a surgeon perform surgery wow. i mean they're just doing it with they're so meticulous about it but it, it produces an amazing cup of coffee and well, is that I would the, say the slow drip. How how is that produced? What's the winner there? Well, it, the 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 process that they use that they won the award for is is called a chemex, which sounds like it's chemical, but it's not. Um, which is essentially a drip. It's a form of drip coffee. They also say things like, "Don't reheat the coffee. Don't put it in the microwave." I mean, they would be horrified at how I drink coffee. <laughs> um, <you know. laughs> Well, I think it's a it's an awesome program, a great way for anybody listening that wants to support yeah, really cool. the organization. I mean, like, you, I bet you most people listening drink coffee, right? Almost everybody does. So, uh, yeah. so you're going to buy your coffee. You might as well at least try it out. Give it a shot. Buy it. Buy a pound, or sorry, uh, yeah, a bag, a pound, and then you know if it if you like it, continue purchasing. You know, and it's a like just we said, it's a great way to uh, move some money that you're already spending somewhere into a way that supports, you know, a great organization. It's better than, I mean, no offense to, I don't know anything about like Pete's coffee or it's better than just buying some random coffee at the store, you know, when you can right. buy coffee that supports them, a good cause. Right. And when is, uh, just uh, curi- out of curiosity, when is harvest season for coffee? Is that a. So harvest season in, uh, in that area is about December through February. Um, uh, the rainy season is okay. starting a little earlier these years, but, um, April, uh, May would be typical. So rainy season, um, what they call winter, uh, um, runs May through October ish more or less. And then you get the dry season and the harvest season. Um, you know, since, you know, U S schools follow an agriculture calendar, theirs do as well. Um, mm-hmm. so their schools are out in October end of October, November, December for harvest. Um, so everybody can uh, pitch in work and harvesting coffee and other things. Um, and then, uh, uh, then the season starts over again. Got it. Okay. I wanted to, to circle back just again, kind of the on the ground talk about, you know, San Lucas Talimon of like, and the mission of, of, you know, just paint a little bit more of, of all the things that the organization and the mission does helping, you know, your everyday person is is there you know some sort of schooling is there you know like obviously there's the coffee one Anna that's pretty awesome there's the fincas just kind of talk a little bit more about all the different aspects and how it impacts that small town in such a rural area yeah so the mission has a number of different programs um there is a a school an education program uh goes pre-k through grade six um the younger grades are montessori based it's one of the few montessori based schools uh, in in the country, and it really has done a remarkable job. It was started because um, in the late 60s, um, indigenous people, indigenous children were not educated. They were not allowed into the public school system. Mm-hmm. 
And so this school was started primarily to um, educate indigenous kids. And the cool thing is that most of the teachers now are indigenous, are graduates of the school. So it's really come full circle. Um, everybody is scholarshiped in the school. So it's really, it costs virtually nothing um, to go to the school. And, uh, and it's really a, a great curriculum, dedicated teachers, and uh, really just a, an incredible, wonderful staff and doing really creative work. How many kids um, are uh, doing that? Uh, 625, 650. Wow. Oh, awesome. Doing, uh, yeah, distance learning uh, course right now, um, which for them, because of uh, there's really not much in terms of infrastructure with technology, really means delivering homework and okay. uh, working with the parents and uh, working with the kids in very small groups. Um, so it's been a it's been a tough year for them. Um, What's COVID been like for them down there? Yeah, it been? it's it's tough. Um, a lot of underreporting um, and uh, a, a really um, rocky start to a vaccination program. Uh, it it's really it's it's pretty tough right now. Um, which can lead me to talk a little bit about the healthcare program, which is one of the other really large programs that the mission runs. So there's okay. a clinic, uh, staff of about thirty. All the resources you would expect in a regular clinic and hospital uh, run by a wonderful man, Dr. Rafael Toon, who's uh, uh, from San Lucas and is the medical director. Um, and that program, the healthcare program touches about 20,000 people a year um, wow. in that area. Uh, another large part of the, the healthcare program is a health promoter program. So every one of the communities has two or three trained health promoters who are trained to identify uh, illnesses, make the appropriate referrals. They also run a diabetes program um, and a child nutrition program. And the child nutrition program has reduced uh, childhood deaths of children under five due to malnutrition by 80%. It wow, does a wonderful amazing. job. It, it, it uh, uses a, uh, a web-based app to track height and weight and identify as stages of, of malnutrition. And then the third piece of the healthcare program is uh, our visiting surgical and medical groups. So medical groups from the US would come and, and run clinics in the communities, surgical groups do perform surgeries in the clinic. And the, um, the medical groups then use a uh, electronic medical record system that allows for uh, continuity of care because you're able to track a patient's diagnoses, you're able to track what um, uh, uh, medicines have been prescribed for that person. And so since each community is visited uh, three or four times a year, they're able to provide continuity um, of caring for the, um, uh, the patients. Um, so if you're getting a little noise behind me, I'm going to go take care of that. <laughs> oh, you're good. Yeah, don't worry about you're it. Good. Yeah, you're good. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, other programs, there's a charity program which provides some direct aid to the most vulnerable. Um, there's a uh, uh, construction program which builds both uh, homes. We build about 80 homes a year and then also um, several hundred fuel efficient stoves every year, which have a huge oh. impact on the health of families. Um, 
What kind of stoves are center. those? Wood stoves or yeah. okay, got it. they 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 burn wood. They're built out of um, fire brick and uh, concrete block, and then they're vented to the outside. Traditionally, you would uh, cook over an open fire inside the house, mm-hmm. which of course led to respiratory disease, um, a lot of eye problems, uh, burns and is a very inefficient use of wood. And so the stoves, uh, um, which are block and brick, and then have a metal uh, plancha, which is the cooking surface, are vented to the outside. They reduce fuel consumption by about 50%, oh, um, cool. which leads, oh. means less deforestation, which yeah. means fewer landslides. So there's just a huge, and we the mission builds about four to 500 um, stoves a year. The wow. homes are either uh, simple wood homes with concrete floors. They all come with stoves. A uh, hybrid home, which is part concrete block and wood, and then a block home, which is a larger, about 540-square-foot home. And um, what homes get built depend on land ownership. Um, you typically will not build a block home on land that is rented hmm. um, because someone show up and and bump the family off so or move them off the land yeah take Um, the house and the other yeah and take their house so the other the other homes we will build on build on rented land usually working with the the landlords to make sure that that there is a long-term lease in in place for the family um the women's center uh uh, provides classes for women and it's just a beautiful place to gather um they do classes in sewing weaving and cooking um, and it's really just a place. It, it's it's a very patriarchal culture. It's unusual for women to gather in groups as women outside the home, and this really provides um, a place for for them to do that. So it's that, and then the the visitors program, which brings about twelve hundred people from the U.S. a year in a non-COVID year to San Lucas to volunteer with the programs, learn uh, about Maya culture. Uh, and just sort of immerse themselves in 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 the area in the both geographic and cultural beauty uh, of what's there. Wow, um, that is impressive. So you much guys there. have a lot going on. I, yeah, I mean, we talk to a lot of nonprofits, and for you to have so many different ways that you're impacting that community is very very impressive. So it 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 feels an honor, and and obviously this has been developed over you know, 50 plus years now, um, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of the giants who put this together, the priests and the the school sisters of Notre Dame who did so much formative work in the sixties and seventies. And, um, but it, I kind of say if, if you can't find some, a program here that, that, um, that interests you, you're not looking hard enough, you know, there's incredible breadth to what the, the mission does. And, I think there's a huge advantage in in focusing geographically and just say, this is the area that we serve. These are the mm-hmm. people we serve. We're going to respond to what's going on there. Um, and they know we're not going away. You know, they know that the mission is there. Um, they know that Friends of San Lucas will continue to support it. And, you know, all of these programs, so it's about 110 mission employees. The face of the delivery of the services is always Guatemalan. So yeah. it's really Guatemalans working with and for Guatemalans. Oh, and nice. we take a backseat to that and we provide, you know, the support we can to make sure it all happens. But, um, you know, the construction program is run by 
you know, the, the director is a, a, a Guatemalan um, from San Lucas. His assistant is a woman who is also an architect who's from San Lucas. So, I mean, it's, it's really important for us that all of the leadership and all of the delivery of services is really done by Guatemalans. Wow. Yeah, that's so important um, that, you know, you're able to cultivate that, that not just Guatemalans, but sounds like even directly from the village too. There's a lot of, yeah. a lot of trust built in there, I'm sure. Um, in non, non-COVID times, what does it look like for people to actually go and volunteer there? Is it, you know, like you said, physically helping build stoves or helping build things physically with their hands? Or what does it just kind of paint a picture for people who actually want to go visit? Yeah, so we have all kinds of different groups that that uh, come and spend time at the mission. Um, could be a secular high school group, college groups. It can be parishes. It can just be families. Mm. Occasionally, a few individuals will go. Um, typical stay is for a week or so. Um, you'll work in some of the construction areas. If coffee harvest is going on, you might help with, with coffee harvest. Um, but otherwise, you might help building stoves, building homes, spend some time at the Women's Center. Um, they do some classes. There's a class called the Day in the Life where you, you kind of learn how to wash clothes by hand, carry wood on your back, make tortillas, things like that. Mm. Uh, you, you will typically have some time to get out on the lake, visit one, one or two of the other communities, each which has a distinctive culture and really fascinating history. Um, and just kind of immerse yourself uh, and be alongside the people. Um, we kind of say the work is an excuse to build relationships. What yeah. we're really interested in is people connecting cross-culturally with people as people. Absolutely. And uh, you know, it's the work continues whether visitors are there or not. This last year was testimony to that. Right. Um, houses still get built. Stoves still get built. You know, services are still delivered. Um, but that making that connection is really important, um, both for the friends of San Lucas and our continued support, because once you see it, once you are there on the ground and sort of see the sights and smell the smells and make those connections, um, you're changed. And, uh, you know, that virtually everybody who's involved with friends of San Lucas will tell you a story about sort of being there and being touched by something going on and making a connection with somebody and uh, kind of falling in love with, with the people and the culture and, and, and what's happening. And, and then you stay connected and that's a wonderful thing. Amazing. That's very cool. I think I know the answer to this question, but just so everyone can hear it, but it's listening safety wise, it's very safe there or how's the, how's the safety wise feel in San, in San Lucas? So in San Lucas, um, it's, it's not bad. Um, first of all, we take the safety of the visitors very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. um, and there have been uh, no significant incidents. Um, there's an uptick in violence in Guatemala, but not in the areas where we mm -hmm. work. Um, uh, part of that because is because the violence is associated with gang activity and also narco trafficking in San Lucas Toloman in general is not on that route. Um, you know that the most dangerous thing that we do is to drive from the airport to San Lucas Toloman, um, both because traffic can be a little crazy, mm -hmm. uh, but because Guatemala City is not one of the safest places. So we yeah. don't. You know, unless somebody gets stuck at the airport and has to stay there, pe you know, people fly in in the afternoon, we get them to the mission. Um, and then, uh, 
you know, the, the visitors from the mission, because it's not a highly touristed city, everybody knows that, that any non Guatemalan looking person is probably there from the mission and they mm. kind of look out for you. Yeah. Um, mm, so, um, it's, uh, you know, we, we do everything we can to try and keep everybody safe and we don't travel at night and just try and, and make smart decisions all the time. Yeah. That's awesome. How far of a drive is that from the airport? It's three to four hours Got it. Um, to get there, depending on uh, traffic and what time of the day you come in and what day of the week it is. And so uh, for people listening to this, obviously, there's a lot that you guys are doing. What are the different ways besides going down there or purchasing coffee? What are other ways that people can contribute to uh, what you guys are doing down there? Well, cer- certainly both of those. Um, we uh, raise $2.6 million or so a year to fund all the programming that goes on. So obviously there are fundraisers going on. We've got a big one coming up in Kansas City this this coming weekend. Um, and uh, so there's always opportunities to participate in, in that. Um, the, the big thing is we just love for people to visit and to connect and see what's going on. Okay. Um, it puts our lives in a really good perspective. I say there are lots of gifts that Guatemala gives, and one of them is the gift of perspective about what's important and, and uh, um, what you want to focus on in your life. And, and, you know, they have so much to teach us about community and a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging that I think a lot of places in the U.S. have lost. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so we just love to have people visit and, and experience that. Okay, I like it. And so uh, as far as that goes, it, you guys go down on a non-COVID year all kind of all throughout the year, or is there certain times that you kind of? Yeah, we have a few blackout weeks, um, but typically it's open all year round. Um, we are taking registrations now for 2022. Okay. Um, we we don't have much confidence about what's going to happen the rest of this year. Right. Uh, it, you know, some things need to get a little bit better there. Um, in terms of COVID. So um, we haven't had people there since March of last year. So there, there will be a pent up demand. Yeah. Uh, people really wanting to go back. And it, it was interesting. We set up a series of virtual events this year uh, to try and connect people with, with what was still going on at the mission. And my initial thought was that the value of those events is to get people in the U S to stay connected with people there. And I hadn't realized how important it was to the folks in, in San Lucas to be able Mm -hmm. to talk to people in the U S because normally when you've got groups coming through the mission, they'll go on a tour of all the programs. So each program director or some person in leadership in the program will be able to give you a little, you know, sort of elevator speech about their program. And, and it finally occurred to me that without visitors, you know, you had this every week, you had 30 people standing in front of you who were just dying to know about what you do, what, you know, what your program is. You're able to sort of sing the praises of this amazing thing that's going on and and you lost that. Mm -hmm. And so these virtual events then really, also allowed the the leadership in San Lucas to keep telling people, here's what we do. And it's really cool. And we love what we do. And we're so grateful um, that we're able to serve the people of San Lucas this way. So um, that's a huge piece of, of uh, 
I think the long-term benefit of the work. Love it. Yeah, that's so awesome. Well, Bill, really appreciate you taking the time to share your passion um, as well as just what the mission is doing here. I think that this is so beneficial for everybody listening because they're learning about an incredible organization doing so many things for a community. I love all the different aspects of it. I love, like you mentioned, that it's you know focusing down on this geographical Region. area and the the value of that versus going super broad, you know, and trying to you know save poverty in Guatemala. You know, it's just it's such a big mission versus like we're going to really focus on this area. So. Um, yeah, let everybody know where else they can uh, follow what's going on and find you and be able to help out, you know, this, this the website, the best place to go. Yes. Yep. Sanlucasmission.org. All right. We'll put it in the show notes and really just appreciate you taking time to share so much. Thanks, Bill. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for all that you do. If you like today's episode, you can find more information at mycorneruniverse.com. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you.